0: You don't know flag. do Welcome to You Don't Know Flag, the podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flack. Episode 129. The El Reno Arcade Collection. Hello, and welcome to episode 129 of You Don't Know Flack. Today is Sunday, March 23rd, 2013, and I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. Today on You Don't Know Flack, we'll be talking about my El Reno arcade collection. I got some comments about episode 128, uh, the last episode about the Commodore 128, and one was just a one-line comment that came off of Twitter from Doctor Quest uh, Chris. By the way, Doctor Quest is such a badass Twitter handle. I love that. Uh, but Doctor Quest said that the introduction to that show sounded too, it was too long because I call it an introduction. And maybe if I called it something else, like, um, the news and feedback section or something like that, it wouldn't seem so long, but by calling it the introduction, it seems long. And I thought that's a, that's a great comment, you know, uh, it's all about managing expectations. Right. And, um, so anyway, I'll be talking a little bit about last week. I, I was, uh, on a road trip last week for work, but, um, while I was in a hotel, I spent some time playing Commodore 64 games, and for some reason on my emulator, I had turned off the turbo mode, which I normally turn on when I'm loading games, so I had started a game loading, and went to the bathroom, and then came back, and the game was still loading, and my first thought was that the emulator had locked up, and I began looking, and then, um, right as I sat back down, it said, ready, and so I realized it hadn't locked up, uh, but it had still been loading, and I had turned off the turbo mode, and that was not uncommon back then, um... Commodore had notoriously slow disk drives, for all you guys that remember back in the day, and especially if you didn't own um, a fast-load cartridge or something like that. Games could take forever. And about the longest game I found that would... Uh, about the longest loading time, I guess, uh, was about 10 minutes for a game. So I, I've i decided that this beginning portion of the podcast is like um, one of those loading screens. So anyway, if you imagine in your mind um, we have now hit... Uh, load on the podcast, and so this is us chatting while the game is loading, or while the podcast is loading, and um, as that longest loading screen that I found was about 10 minutes long, the loading screen portion of the podcast will never go past 10 minutes, so if you don't enjoy these little uh, fireside chats (laughs) that we have at the beginning of the program, you can skip right to the 10 minute mark, uh, and jump right into this week's episode, otherwise, Back then, we didn't have that option, and so we would often sit around and, and talk and do something else while games loaded. So anyway, this is the loading screen portion of the podcast, so welcome to that. I'll probably have to come up with a catch-your-name. Um, the music you hear in the background is the soundtrack from Street Fighter two EX. Street Fighter Two Championship Edition is one of the games we'll be talking about this week, so I thought um, that would be appropriate. Last week was Spring Break here in Oklahoma and one of the things my son did during spring break was he attended a scratch programming class at our school one of the teachers put that on and um, Mason uh, he's 11 and um, he spent a lot of time last week now again I was out of town but he spent a lot of time programming and he sent me an email to one of his his first scratch programs. so I was very excited um, especially after, you know, right off the heels of, uh, of the basic programming episode, 127. And so uh, I click on the link, and it's a side cutaway view of a guy, and the name of this, of this uh, it's not really a game, there's not much to it, but, uh, but the name of this little scratch program is called How Hershey's Kisses Are Made. And so um, when I fire it up, uh, you get this side view of a guy, and your mouse is controlling a hamburger, and when you drop a hamburger into the guy's mouth, you can watch it go through his digestive system, and then a little Hershey's kiss comes out his butt, <laughs> which is um, uh, good uh, 11-year-old humor, I guess. But uh, So anyway, uh, maybe someday when Mason does a podcast, he'll think back on the first program he wrote, and then like a sweet dinosaur trivia game written in basics, such as myself, he can talk about his little um, animated... Hoop gear. So there you go. Um, as I mentioned, I did spend a couple days last week in Washington, D.C. Uh, if you don't know, I work for a government agency whose primary mission in life is to ensure the safety of airplane travel. Which makes it uh, ironic that I really hate flying. And I will avoid flying. Uh, as much as possible, so um, this trip was kind of short notice, so I had the option of taking a flight uh, that I didn't want, or driving to Washington, D.C., so I chose to drive to Washington, D.C., which, according to Google Maps, is about 1,350 miles away, and can be done in just under 20 hours, so on the way out there, I did the trip in two days, uh, I stopped at a hotel the first night, and that's where I recorded episode 128 of You Don't Know Flack, uh and then drove into DC then on the way back i actually drove uh straight through on the way back i made it in just over 22 hours which is um uh, not safe and a ridiculous thing to do i highly do not recommend uh you do that but anyway uh one of the things i did to keep myself entertained during that trip was listen to podcasts and of course i have all the podcasts that i've been mentioning up to date Um, Which is a problem when you go on a a road trip, you don't have anything to listen to. I'd already caught up on all the episodes of the 2600 Game by Game podcast. Um, Earl Green's Escape Pod, No Quarter. Uh, A couple of new podcasts I found was, um, I think I mentioned this in the hotel, I found Doug McCoy's Found Footage Films podcast, which is a podcast about um, movies like The Blair Witch where um, uh, in the movie they have found footage left behind by someone who has been uh, killed or murdered or disappeared. Uh, He talks about those movies. I also found the Adventure Club podcast, which is run by um, a couple of guys, Guy Hutchison and John Jay, and actually I'm going to be on the Adventure Club podcast next week, so if you watch uh, Facebook or the website, I'll announce when that's going to be. I also found a lot of podcasts um, that uh, I think do false advertising, like I found um, one podcast... And I'm going to say it's called something like um, The Last Quarter in the Arcade or something like that. I just searched for terms like, you know, arcade, retro arcade, retro games, stuff like that. So I find this podcast, and it's called something like that. Uh, last Quarter in the Arcade. And I'm sure it's a good podcast. I'm not um, a blast blasting the podcast. But I listened to two or three episodes, and they never mentioned an arcade game. So, I mean, they talked about PC and console games and, and newer ones, so... Um, I added a lot of podcasts during the trip that I ended up deleting, so... But anyway, I uh, did did catch up on some podcasts last week. Um, I also took um, two... Chris- well, one was a, a Valentine's Day gift I bought for myself, and one was a Christmas present. For Valentine's Day, I bought myself a Super Nintendo-style USB gamepad, which plugs into your PC and you can play uh, games with it, so I took that with me on the trip and did some... It works great with uh, MAME and with the Commodore 64 emulators. Also, for Christmas, I got the 8 bit iCade Bluetooth gamepad, um, which is compatible with the iCade. So it's made to work with um, the iPad, and it works with Android tablets. And there are lots of games that support it, but it's a, instead of being like the iCade, like the whole cabinet, it's just a gamepad that you hold. It looks like an old NES... It's styled like an NES gamepad, but it has four uh, buttons instead of two, and it also has two shoulder buttons, so... But I got it working uh, very quickly with iMame on the iPad and the Atari Classic Collection. So So that was cool. I played with that. I want to mention that this episode, we have a a sponsor for this episode who goes by the name of Hexcrasher. And uh, Hexcrasher runs ArcadePerfect.net. So if you haven't checked that website out, go check out ArcadePerfect.net. You can find Hex on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash arcade underscore perfect. Uh, Arcade Perfect has lots of pictures and articles about current and old arcades. So if you're into the arcade scene at all, uh, and you want to see pictures of uh, current and retro arcades, there's some super cool stuff on there. And actually, I have a guest article that I'm working on for them. So So be sure to check out ArcadePerfect.net. And speaking of arcades, it looks like the podcast has finished loading. So I'm going to type run here on my trusty Commodore 64. And that will get us started on episode 129 of You Don't Know Flack, my arcade collection in El Reno, Oklahoma. So I had to work backwards uh, from the story I wanted to tell this week to where the story begins. And unfortunately, this story begins with the passing away of my father-in-law in in 1993. Now, he wasn't my father-in-law then, uh, because I wasn't married yet. Susan and I were still dating. Uh, But her dad passed away from cancer in 1993, and... Uh, in late 1993 or maybe early 1994, uh, my wife's mother got a life insurance settlement in the, uh, mid five figure range, let's say. So, uh, now somehow, uh, my wife and I didn't get any of this money, <laughs> uh, which is to be expected. I mean, that's, uh, uh, that, that's, uh, how it works, I guess. But, um. My wife's mom, my mother-in-law, uh, did get the money and uh, began spending the money. And so she would take my wife and they would go shopping. And then um, uh, my mother-in-law, I guess, just wanted you know companionship at that time. She wasn't buying things necessarily for uh, my wife or myself. But um, uh, So anyway, she picked my wife up one day and they were going to go to an auction. Now at this time, uh, this is... 1994, and my wife and I are living in a mobile home. My, uh, I talked a little bit about this in the first episode of You Don't Know Flack, but my mother-in-law had purchased a mobile home for my wife uh, to live in while she was going to college. And so I moved in, and I kind of messed up all the plans for everybody, I think. But um, uh, So I moved in, and this is the mobile home that I had uh, purchased that's where we were living when I purchased my first arcade game, which was Elevator Action. And uh, I told this story, like I said, in the first episode, but if you haven't listened to that episode, to make a long story short, in the local newspaper I found an Elevator Action for sale for $200, and I uh, hit my buddy Jeff up about it and asked him what he thought, and he thought it was such a great idea that he would pay half. So we split the price of Elevator Action, we each paid $100, and... Um, so I went and got it with my truck and brought it home, and it backed the truck right up to the front door of the uh, mobile home. It stood the game up, so now it was inside the house, and I put it on an old skateboard and wheeled it to the dining room, and I stuck it, I the, my wife had this little table that she had a plant on, and I moved the table, and I put the arcade game in the corner of the dining room, and I, and then the um, plant that was on the table I put on top of the arcade game to I don't know if I was trying to hide it or just make it look like it fit in. Um, but uh, she was uh, totally cool about the whole thing. And so for a while, we had an elevator action arcade game in the corner of the dining room in our mobile home. So, I mean, there's no part of this story really that doesn't say classy, I'm thinking. but um, So anyway, my uh, wife and her mother leave one morning. Uh, To go to an auction and I'm perfectly happy uh, in our little mobile home and and my wife comes home and says well We bought something at the auction and I said well, what did you buy and she said well? We bought a house and I said well we can't afford to buy a house right now. Uh, I was working at Best Buy and making um, Like six bucks an hour something like that and she says no well my mom actually bought two houses and they're on the same property, and they're in a, a town called El Reno, which is about 15 minutes uh, west of where we were living. So, uh, so the uh, agreement was that my mother-in-law would carry uh, the note or whatever for these houses. Actually, uh, no, I mean she um, she paid cash for the houses, and but the deal was is that we would pay her rent. And, um, so the two houses together, both houses were $75,000. So we figured that, um, you know, that the houses were comparable so that the house would cost us thirty seven five. So I think that figured out to be like $300 a month, uh, rent for 10 years. And then we would own the house. So, We go out and look at the house uh, that we've apparently purchased. This is an odd way to to go house shopping, to buy a house and then go look at it, right? Uh, So we go out to the house and the house was built in 1880. Which for uh, listeners on the East Coast, that might not seem... I mean, it's old, I'm sure, but it's not that old. Um, But 1880 is 27 years before Oklahoma was a state, so that's pretty old around here. Um, El Reno is named because it's near Fort Reno, uh, which is a um, a military fort which was located right off of Route 66. So Route 66 runs through uh, the town I live in and grew up in Yukon, Oklahoma, but it also runs through El Reno. So. This house um, was originally, if you, uh, I would say, like perfectly square, and it was two stories, so it was a square house, and then on top of it was another square house, um, and each of these had four rooms. But what had happened over time is that the house had been added onto uh, to make apartments, I guess, because uh, El Reno is also a college town, so. The house, had had two additional apartments built on. One in the, the rear of the house, and then one kind of to the side of the house, which um, the add-ons were, were more um, modern, I guess. So, And by modern, I mean like, let's say 1950s, maybe. Um, so, so we go look at the house, and the entire house is divided up into these separate apartments. So, uh, they said that, um, the house was a little over 3,000 square foot, which uh, was gigantic to us. Uh, my house, the mobile home was, uh, 14 feet wide, so (laughs) 3,000 square foot, see, pretty big. Um, and so each, but, but it was still divided up into apartments. So, um... The area, you know, each area had its own living room, its own... So we had four living rooms, we had four kitchens, we had four dining rooms, uh, and then we had four bedrooms. So three of those were downstairs, and then there was a fourth that was upstairs. Uh, so that's one two, 16 rooms. Plus, then in the rear upstairs, they had built a big, giant studio apartment that you could get to either from outside or from inside the house. Uh, and it didn't have a bathroom. It was just one big giant room, but it did have like, um, sink and things like that. I think I only went in that room like once, um, maybe once or twice. I don't know. But, uh, so the two of us, my wife and I, we ended up moving into this house and, uh, you know, we went from a trailer, uh, three bedroom trailer with two pretty small rooms and a, a master bedroom and a, you know, just a normal trailer, I guess. Uh, to a house with four, uh, 17, 17 rooms. Um, so we honestly didn't know what to do with all that space. Um, one uh, At one point, we had a dirty clothes room. We just had one room where we put our dirty clothes. Um, and then the room next to it was like um, the shoe room. <laughs> when you have 17 rooms, you get kind of creative, you know? Uh, now I would love well I wouldn't love the house the house was terrible, but I would love to have um an area that's divided up into all those things, so I could have you know a commodore room and an arcade room and a uh you know a video game room and a computer room and uh and I'd probably still have a dirty clothes room why not <laughs> but that's uh how the house was divided up so and not to get too much into the house, but the house was really old, and the newer areas were okay, but the older areas were really rough. Um, everything like there was no there was no showers. We had four bathtubs, like the big claw bathtubs that people collect. We had four of them, uh, but but no shower. And everything ran off of gas, and the gas was always leaking, so the house always smelled like gas. I'm pretty sure. Uh, Somebody's since purchased the house, and they fixed it up, and I hope they fixed the gas problem because I was always afraid uh that the house was gonna blow up. <laughs> there was no smoking allowed in the house because I was always afraid uh that it would explode, but anyway, so we move into this house and it has all these different rooms right and so in the main uh part we we moved into an area that had it was like one of the the more modern areas. We moved into the living room and actually uh, this area had a window air conditioner. And so that's why we moved into that area because it was right before the summer. And in the summer in Oklahoma, it's not uncommon to get over a hundred degrees. So, so we moved into that area, uh, but the kitchen attached to that area was pretty old, uh, kitchen appliances. And I don't even think they all worked. So right off the living room was a giant kitchen. With a bunch of appliances that didn't really work. There was... Uh, I mean, I think there was a stove. Um, that may have been the only thing in there. There was no fridge in there. I remember that. So, so we had this giant room right off the living room. And I ended up moving my elevator action arcade game in there. So it was like right off the living room we had a separate room with one arcade game. And around this time, uh, I think my dad pointed it out to me that there was... An arcade auction coming up in Oklahoma City, and so my dad and I took his truck and we went to this auction and I've told this story before, but um I know it's in invading spaces, and I know I've, I think I may have retold it even on um one of the podcasts, but so we go to the the auction we're we're going down if if you've never been to an arcade auction they line up all the games and you move from game to game and they auction each game off. So they plug it in, they turn it on. You can see if it comes on or not. And then they sell it and then they move on to the next game. So, uh, one of the games that I saw for sale that day was Matt mania and Matt mania I've mentioned before is, uh, when I was a kid, you know, I was really into mid South wrestling. Um, they had wrestling in this area we had uh we were in Oklahoma but the Von Ericks were from Texas and so the Von Eriks, Carrie Von Erich, Kevin Von Erich, David Von Erick, they would come up to Oklahoma. We always saw um Heck saw Jim Duggan, I think he was from this area, Junkyard Dog, all these people, you know, so we would we would wrestling was a big deal for me as a kid. Um I kinda got out of it, but uh, you know, back then wrestling was big and so when Matt Mania came out uh, I played I played that game a lot. It's a one player game. There, there's a I mean one at a time. You can alternate players, but it's a wrestling game. And so as they're auctioning games off, I see this, and I'm and you know you have that perception that everybody sees things like you see it. Like I'm like oh god, everybody's gonna want Matt Mania, but. Um, You have to think about the arcade industry at this time. This is the mid-90s, and so there are still arcades open, but they are struggling. And I have talked about, I talked about this again in Invading Spaces, that there are three categories of arcade games. There are uh, the early classics, and those games don't ever seem to lose their value. They're starting to now a little bit, but... Uh, You know, those are the Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man, Defender, uh, Centipede, Missile Command. Those games uh, that people see, and even if you're not an arcade person, you recognize you know what they are. So those are classic games. And then on the opposite spectrum are new games that are money earners, and those are the games that operators want. Those are the games that you put on site and will make you money. Uh, so, you know, this is whatever, the uh, hunting games, the shooting games, the bowling, uh, not bowling, uh, golf, you know, golden tee, those type of games are money earners. But there's this big window in between of games that nobody cares about. Now, you might say, uh... There are certain games that are collectible because they may have a tie in, like for a license, like, uh, you know, I had a Robocop game or a WWF wrestling game. Those are kind of exceptions because you can, they have a market not just for arcade collectors, but also for whatever that tie in is. Like you might have somebody who's interested in wrestling, interested in a WWF game. But there's so many games during that time that were released in the late 80s, uh, all the way through the 90s, that don't have any sort of crossover marketability that are more or less worthless. I mean, they're worth less than the sum of their parts. You could take a game like Matt Mania, uh, if it works, pull the board out, sell the board, pull the uh, monitor out, get rid of the monitor, convert it to something else, whatever. I mean, as a game, it's not worth that much, but the parts are probably worth more than the game is. But anyway, so I'm at this auction. And I registered just in case. You know, you never know. Uh, some great deal comes up and we get to Matt Mania. And um, like I said, I, I know I'm repeating myself here. But long story short, I ended up getting the Mat Mania game for $25. And it worked. Um, it was missing uh, the graphics, the bezel that go around the monitor. You could actually see into the cabinet around the monitor. Uh, but I had the marquee and the control panel and everything else. And it was definitely a, a conversion cabinet. Um, but yeah, I ended up getting uh, Matt Mania. So I get Matt Mania and I take it home, and now I have two arcade games sitting side by side. So now the wheels start turning. Okay, now I'm not a guy that owns an arcade game. Now I'm a guy that that buys arcade games. Like I'm going to have more than one arcade game. I have two, and, and I have room for more in this little room. And it's funny how arcade game collections tend to fill the space in which you put them. Actually they always seem to get a little bit bigger than the space that you give them, which has been uh, my experience anyway. So, uh, so like I said, first game that I had was Elevator Action. I bought that out of a newspaper. I uh, paid 200 for it. That is the uh, 1983 game uh, by Taito. Uh, if, if you are a fan of elevator action or don't know that much about elevator action, you can check out episode number 10 of the No Quarter podcast. And they did their. They played elevator action and did the review. So I'm going to talk about. I ended up with six games in my little uh, arcade room there in El Reno, Oklahoma. So I'm going to talk about each of those six games just briefly. I'm going to talk about. Uh, well, I, I, other than, uh, well, I guess I'd, I could say I talk about where I got them, what I paid for them, um, and what I learned by owning them. So the Elevator Action, like I said, uh, $200, bought it out of a newspaper. I guess what I learned from owning Elevator Action was uh, when I went and picked it up, it was a guy had it in his home arcade, and I had never seen a home arcade. He had a converted garage that they had turned into like a den, but then uh, it was more like a game room, and there was a wall of arcade games, you had a pool table and stuff like that. And I had never seen a home arcade like that before. So really, uh, I don't know that um, I learned that much from owning that particular machine, except for just, that was really my foray into arcade collecting, I mean, that's the first game that I bought by myself. Um, So I, I did learn a few things the hard way, like about moving it, um, you know, being prepared. I, I've said before, when I uh, went to go pick the game up, I didn't have any ropes or tarps or straps or anything like that. I just had a pickup, and I just assumed somehow you would magically throw it in a pickup, and it would arrive safely at its destination. Uh, and I was very lucky that it did arrive in working order. But, uh, but yeah, I, I guess that's what I learned from that one was just the whole the introduction into the experience. And then uh, Map Mania. I learned, uh, first of all, really I learned uh, that uh, arcade games weren't, that there were arcade games that I, even ones that I liked that were more or less worthless. I mean, 25 bucks, I could, well, maybe not today, but there was surely a day where I could have eaten $25 worth of Taco Bell. Maybe not in one sitting, but maybe in a day. You know, I mean, 25 bucks is nothing. Uh, you know, with the gas prices right now, I just uh, filled up my truck yesterday with $90. So, yeah, 25 bucks is nothing. But, um, So that's really what I learned about Mat Mania, was that the, you have this middle era of games that uh, may be playable to you or you may be interested in, but just don't have a market value. So uh, now I have these two arcade games sitting side-by-side, side, and boy, do I have the bug. I mean, I'll play Matt Mania, and then I'll play Elevator Action. I'm playing these games, and I decide that I need more games. And at this time, this arcade auction was uh, traveling. They, it's I think it is what grew into the super auctions that are now mostly in... Um, I know they do them in Dallas quarterly, and there's some other places, but they were uh, traveling, I guess, so it was a smaller scale um, but they were doing it in more cities and they, and they were stopping in Oklahoma City. So about three months later they come through and I go back and um, now I've got the bug and I've got some cash you know I've been saving up my money and I bought two games three months later at the next auction. The first of those was Shinobi. Now I have owned three different Shinobi cabinets. I love Shinobi. I mean, it's one of those games, I think, that, um, you know, what's the phrase? Uh, you had to be there. Like, I was so into, and this is um, probably an upcoming, maybe very soon upcoming, uh, topic for You Don't Know Flack, but in the 80s, I was really into the Ninja, uh, Culture or subculture or whatever. I was into the ninja movies. I had a ninja suit. I had foam, rubber nunchucks and rubber ninja stars and real stars and a blowgun. I mean, I really, if you were in the Oklahoma area looking for somebody trained to be an assassin, like if you needed, um, you know, a ninja mission run by an overweight 13 year old, I was your guy. I could have made that happen. Um, but, um, I was really into, uh, the whole ninja thing. I took karate for a lot of years. And, um, so when Shinobi came out, Shinobi came out, it was a 1987 game released by Sega. And it was like the culmination of all this stuff. I mean, it was 16 bit graphics by Sega. It had great sound. Um, and it had ninjas and, uh, so when I saw that game, I, I just fell in love with the game Shinobi. And um, so when I saw it at this arcade, I was like, oh, crap, I love Shinobi. And um, I paid $25 for Shinobi. So, you know, and, and um, the auctioneer, when it fired up, the auctioneer said, um, now it doesn't have sound. He said, this game doesn't, for some reason, the sound isn't working, but it's probably a loose wire going to the speaker. And I thought, hey, I can fix a loose wire, you know? So, ultimately, what I found out about Shinobi, if you want to fast forward, is that uh, Sega, during their 16-bit era, began using what we now refer to as suicide chips. And these are chips that contain, uh, they're encrypted. And the thing that decrypts them runs off of a battery. And this is all mounted to the board. And the reason is because, um, I guess, arcade manufacturers were really worried about their competitors pulling chips off of the board and uh, probably not dumping them like we think of, you know, for preserving them for MAME, but, um, you know, making bootlegs. This was to protect, um, you know, from somebody pulling the chips off and making copies of your uh, arcade hardware. So the way that they got around this was they encrypted parts of the board and the part that decrypted it runs off of a battery which is connected to the board. So if you pull the chip off of the board, it's no longer decrypted and it doesn't work. So it's a fairly ingenious little protection scheme. The problem with it is is that those batteries eventually go bad and that they begin leaking battery acid. And if you look at a Shinobi PCB, the the, uh, printed circuit board, the chips that run the sound are right underneath the battery. So when you buy a Shinobi machine that doesn't have sound, it is probably not a loose wire that is causing this machine to not have sound. It is probably the fact that the battery is leaking battery acid all over the PCB, which is what happened in the case of my Shinobi. So this is um, this causes two problems. The first problem is battery acid is now all over the board and it has eaten up the sound chips. Number two, when that battery completely goes bad, which it probably is since it's leaking battery acid, uh, the game won't work because now the part, the decryption process that is run by the battery, no longer works. So not only have you bought a game now that's probably has uh, battery acid damage, but it won't work very much longer. Now there are ways uh, to fix this, I've learned later in life, much later after I owned uh, and got rid of Shinobi. There are unencrypted versions of the chip, so you can pull that chip off and burn a different chip with an unencrypted version of the code and plug that back into the board. That's one way around it. The other way is uh you can replace those batteries. Now of course it's a delicate process because if you remove the battery, the decryption part no longer works. So you have to you know jumper another battery in line, remove the old battery, replace it probably with a battery case, um and, and fix it that way. So but so I finally own Shinobi and uh and had no sound, and to be honest, I didn't care. I love Shinobi so much that I would play Shinobi um, with or without sound. It didn't matter to me. Uh, but I did learn from owning that two things. One, I learned all about the problems of uh, 16-bit Sega games, and Shinobi uh, specifically, and the suicide batteries, and all that stuff. So I got to learn all that. Uh, and the other thing I learned is that sellers, especially auction sellers... We'll tell you anything. And in a previous episode, I know I, uh, about I have an episode about arcade auctions. So between that episode and the first episode, you may have heard some of these stories. but I went to an arcade, uh, an arcade auction, and I found a Frogger machine, and long story short, the Frogger machine was completely gutted. I mean, there was nothing in it but dust and ashes. Uh, I mean, just completely empty. All the wiring, all the copper, everything had been stripped out of this machine. And so uh, when the auctioneer got to it, they said, "We'll turn it on. And, uh, you know, obviously when they flipped the switch, nothing happened. And the auctioneer stood there before all of us and said, that game was working earlier today. I don't know what's happened, but, you know, this might be an opportunity to get a, a working game that might need a, a small repairs or whatever. Now, that's BS. I mean, it's going to need... Uh, if that game was working earlier, I you know I think I joked before, then it was either uh, another miracle, <laughs> like uh, I, like of biblical proportions that that game uh, was displaying Frogger on a machine with a monitor with no power, um just not possible. That game was not working. So uh, yeah, I I've learned the more you learn about arcade games, especially in uh, when you're buying and selling. Going to auctions, it's really to protect you. Um, so, the more, like I said, when you see what games are doing, I mean, I'm not saying don't buy a game that doesn't work, but if you know more about repairs and you know you see a game that's not working, you might know what's going to go into those repairs. I bought a um, Neo Geo game one time and not as part of the El Reno collection. Um But I bought a neo Geo game at an auction, and the controls didn't work and I thought you know i it can't it didn't seem like it was a board issue it didn't seem like i mean the board was working it had sound it was playing um and the other buttons were working it was just the joystick and when I got it home, one of the ground wires uh had been cut going and um on most control panels you'll see that the ground wires are just daisy chained between all the buttons and all the joysticks. So it just goes you know, from one to one to one to one to one all the way back to um, the ground on the harness. And that ground wire had been cut, which caused all the buttons to stop working. So I found that ground cut, fixed it, and that cabinet worked great. I had it for a long time. And I sold it, it's one of the ones I sold when I moved last year. So uh, that machine worked for, for 10 years. So by knowing more about um, games and specific game problems and stuff, um, you know, Like I said, it allows you to know if a repair is going to be within the scope. You know, if you see a dim monitor uh, and a seller tells you, well, it's probably a brightness adjustment. Well, guess what? It's not a brightness adjustment. Or they would have turned it up and they would be charging you more money. It needs a cap kit. And so you just need to weigh inside your head. uh, Is that, you know, a time and money and skill um, investment that you want to put into a game? And a lot of times it is. You know, you can buy cheap games that need small fixes at whatever um, the seller wasn't able to do, didn't have the time to do, or didn't have the interest in doing so. Uh, but anyway, so that's what I learned about Shinobi, is that a seller will tell you anything to sell you a game. And boy, did they tell me. Probably a wire to the speaker. Yeah, right. Um, so the other game I bought at that auction was um, Street Fighter Two. Now, I bought... Um, this street fighter 2 and um i didn't check it out before the auction so they turned it on i saw it playing or whatever uh and i bid and i think i ended up getting it for 50 dollars. so this is a lot of money 50 dollars. i mean you know shinobi's only 25 matt mania's only 25 so now i'm really really up in my game i'm moving up into the 50 dollar range right and so I'm loading up my games after the auction. Now, we're, at this time, I didn't even have a trailer. We had my dad's pickup. So upright, I could put, like, two games in the bed. So I've already bought Shinobi, and we, somehow we get that loaded up in there. And now we're doing um, Street Fighter. So I'm getting a dolly, and I'm getting ready to wheel it out. And this guy comes up to me, and he says, you know, the, the board in that game's not any good. And I'm like, what? And he says, "Yeah, you know, there, there's bad capacitors on there, and, and the game starts resetting after five minutes or something like that." And I'm like, "Well, why didn't why didn't they tell me that?" But you know, the Shinobi thing—I hadn't learned that lesson yet—that the seller will tell you anything, right? So uh, he says, "But I have a uh, championship edition Street Fighter II board." That I was going to, if I got that cabinet, I was going to put this board in it and just make it, you know, it's just a, a simple um, jamma swap. Well, I didn't know what any of that meant, you know, but uh, he said he was selling a Street Fighter II Championship Edition board for $50 just for the board by itself. So I ended up paying him $50 for the board. So now I have a cabinet and then I have another board. So now I have a $100 game. Uh, but... I get it home, and the first thing I learn is that one of the joysticks uh, won't go a couple of directions. It goes... Um, I, don't, I don't remember, but let's say it went up and down, but not left and right. So uh, I call my friend Jeff, who, um, among other things, took electronic repair at Votech at high school. So Jeff comes over, and we figure out how to open a control panel. I would never opened an arcade game before. We open the panel. And uh, we look at the wiring, and it all looks okay, but what we notice is that when you move the joystick, it hits these little micro-switches, which we I didn't know how it all worked back then. And the switches, we press it with our fingers, it still doesn't move the players, and so basically we figure out that the switches are bad. Um, And so Jeff went home, and he came back, and he brought one of those old Epics 500XJ joysticks, which... Now it kind of seems like sacrilege to take that apart, um, knowing how cheap switches are, but um, uh, I got a stack of those joysticks now, so it's all good. But anyway, we we pulled this joystick apart, and I don't know if you remember these. They were the joystick... You kind of held it uh, with your left hand sideways, your hand wrapped around it, and uh, it was black and red. had a red joystick on the top. But inside that, it used... um, the same kind of micro switches just like what are in arcade games and so we pulled the switches out of this joystick and put it in the arcade game replaced them and it started working now we hadn't changed the board at that point because i started thinking well maybe that guy you know was just trying to sell me a board but sure enough we played for five minutes and the game would reset five minutes and it would reset or lock up so uh you know i tell jeff i said hey i got this other board uh, now, and keep in mind, this is, uh, for me, this is pre-internet, so there's no, you're not going to hop online and type in, you know, I didn't even know the what the word JAMA meant, but, you know, you couldn't get on there and say, you know, what's a JAMA harness, how do I switch, thing? we were just like looking at this thing trying to figure it out. So we look at the connector, the JAMA, and we look at the other board, and it looks like they kind of look like they're the same thing, and so we just unplug one and plug in the other, and fire it all up, and sure enough, Fixed it all. So I had a Street Fighter 2 Championship Edition game uh, fully working. We fixed the joystick. That's, uh, and we swapped out the board. So um, everything worked. And we used to play the crap out of that game. Um, I was always, I know there are Street Fighter people and there are Mortal Kombat people, and I'll tell you, I'm a Mortal Kombat person. I was way more into Mortal Kombat. That I was Street Fighter, but um, having owned that Street Fighter cabinet, I, I grew to appreciate it and I got better at it. Uh, but what I learned from that machine was really um, how machines worked. I mean, that's the first machine that I ever opened. That's the first one that I actually got in there and we did wiring repairs and we changed switches out and we changed the board out. You know, so um, I I was far from an expert. I'm far from an expert now, but. Uh, that was really the first um, the first time I actually opened up a machine. So so at that point I have four machines. I've got Elevator Action, Matt Mania, Shinobi, and now Street Fighter Two Championship Edition. And um, a few months later, I go to back to the auction, and uh, there's not as many things at this auction for some reason. But there was one game that caught my eye, and this game was called Power Instinct Two. And, um, Power Instinct 2 is a 1994 fighting game by Atlas. Now, remember, this is probably, uh, early spring. I mean, this could be as early as, like, January or February of 1995. So, this game is less than a year old. Well less than a year old. Um, and I didn't really understand at the time how conversions worked, like why operators would convert machines from one to another, but this game was in a Nintendo Punch-Out cabinet. And it was in the old uh, Nintendo Punch-Out cabinet that had two monitors. So not only was this a goofy fighting game, but it was a goofy fighting game that had two monitors <laughs> stacked on top of one another. And uh so, anyway, if you've never seen Power Instinct 2, and by the way, you have never seen Power Instinct 2. I mean, I, there could be one or two of you out there, but this game was obscure, and there's a reason why it wasn't popular. This was a fighting game that just had, like, kooky Japanese characters in it. Like, I thought that it was, um, I honestly thought that it was an offshoot of Sailor Moon at the time um but i I guess it's not I guess it's just um its own little uh characters or whatever but anyway um i I paid fifty dollars for it, which i mean now today like if I were buying an arcade game and I saw this thing I would buy it and I would immediately sell the two working Nintendo monitors for fifty bucks uh i mean I could probably sell them for a hundred bucks each for working nintendo monitors um But, uh, anyway, so I had this, um, giant Power Instinct to which, by the way, uh, well, I'll talk a little bit more about the the photographs that I have of these games here after I talk about the last one, but, uh, for years, I couldn't remember the name of this game. I knew that I had it, and I, you know, searched for things like Sailor Moon Fighting, Girls Fighting, stuff like that, and I couldn't find it, but, um... I did eventually find an old photograph, uh, or an old picture, I should say, of this arcade game, and uh, that's how I found out what the name was, Power Instinct 2. But anyway, I guess uh, if I learned anything from owning that one, it was just about arcade conversions, you know, how you could take a game. This thing would have been worth a lot more if I would have converted it back to be a a punch-out machine, you know. I probably could have sold it just a punch-out cabinet for more than the $50 I paid for uh, Power Instinct 2, you know. But anyway, so yeah, that I had a goofy um, Japanese fighting game. I think everybody needs one of those. So that was the fifth game I got, and so I was kind of happy with my little collection of five games, and then as it happens, and you, uh, those of you that have arcade games have probably been through this, somebody contacted me. That was actually a coworker uh, who said, I have an arcade game and you can have it. <laughs> And I said, okay, well, what is it? And he says, well, it's the old game, and it's called Star Wars. And I was like, what? (laughs) I could have your Star Wars game. And so he told me a story about um, his parents had gone out of town and left him to house uh, sit. So he was house sitting, and lightning hit their house while he was there. And when it did, it, like, I guess ruined a bunch of their electronics. Like it ruined all their TVs and just a huge power surge. And they had had this working arcade game that he said had been in the family for like 10 years. So I don't know if they bought it. I mean, surely they didn't buy it new, but man, this game looked good. I mean, not a scratch on it. just looked beautiful. And he said after the lightning strike, it had quit working. So he said, if I wanted it, come get it and I could have it. So I was like, well, yeah, I'll come get it. And I don't think... Um, to me at least, at that time Star Wars the arcade game, I mean, you know, I've been collecting Star Wars stuff since I was four years old, so I love Star Wars and I love arcade games so I definitely wanted this machine but I don't think as far as in the collector community that um, a Star Wars arcade game had the clout that it has now, it wasn't um, I don't think it was like a holy grail back then Um, but uh, you know yeah, it was a free arcade game. I'd take that. So I went and picked it up, threw it in my truck, came home, plugged it in. Sure enough, it didn't work. And that damn game sat there. I never looked at it. I never touched it. And uh, when it was time to get rid of this collection, uh, I basically gave it away to a guy. Um well, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that, too, here in a second. But, yeah, I... You know, knowing what I know now, God, it was probably a fuse, or, I mean, maybe a capacitor was blown or something, but I bet it would have been a simple fix to fix that game, and it kills me to know that I had it, and I never looked at it, and I never I never did anything, you know, but, eh, you live and learn, I guess. So, um so now at this point we're living at this house and I have my six arcade games uh, including the Star Wars one which doesn't work and at that time I had got hired on as a contractor uh, a government contractor so now I'd been, you know, at this point I'm making like ten bucks an hour which is super big time for me and um, I'm doing all this work and I'm traveling out to different offices and one office I traveled out to was in Spokane, Washington and Spokane, Washington was a satellite office off of Seattle. If you know your um, Washington topology or um, uh, your uh, locations in, in uh, the state of Washington, you'll know that Seattle is all the way on the West Coast and Spokane is all the way on the East Coast. So they're like four hours away. So they they set up this office in Spokane and they said they were going to need a computer person to work there. And I, And I'm just like talking trash. You know, I'm like, well... If you want the best, let me know, and I'll come out, and I'll be your computer guy. Which I had no intentions of, of doing, right? But then um, they eventually had an opening. They opened up that position, and they bid it, and they called me, and they said, hey, we are hiring a computer person. So if you're interested in that position, um, to let them know. And so I talked to my wife, and we had um, lived in Oklahoma our entire lives. We'd lived basically... Other than um, the year we went to college in Weatherford, I had lived probably you know within uh, 5 to 10 miles of where I'd grown up my entire life. So we thought this would be an exciting adventure, and so I applied for the position, and I got picked and um, had to move from Oklahoma City to Spokane, Washington, which is about 1,850-mile drive. And uh, more or less... I had about a month between when I applied and when I had to start. So, um, I, you know, basically by the time I turned in my two week notice, I had a week off to get up to Spokane and then I started the following Monday. So I moved to Spokane, Washington, um, without, I didn't have a house or a apartment or anything lined up. Uh, I just drove across country and, hoped that I could find an apartment. (laughs) Which now seems just like super crazy, right? And I had a a 96 Dodge Neon. And so I loaded up all the stuff that I thought was important, which was every music CD, my computers, uh, my Super Nintendo, my 13-inch television with the giant 3 on it that we talked about. uh, All these things. uh, And the Neon. Now, and my wife she um, gives me a hard time because here are the things I forgot to take with me on this trip Uh, I didn't take any bedding so I didn't have a pillow uh, or a blanket or anything like that I didn't take toothpaste somehow I remembered my toothbrush but not toothpaste um so not I didn't take it actually yeah no mattress no bed no nothing like that so it was pretty poor planning on my part but um so what happened was, as I moved, I left Susan behind in El Reno. And her job, uh, not her job, but um, uh, what she was going to do is sell the El Reno house. So we had put the house on the market. And um, the other thing that we were going to do is sell the arcade game. So I told her, some, and I don't remember the exact number, but something like, you know, I think they're worth like 200 each. So I would take 100 but try to get 200 so, I, I sold them, you know, and I, I didn't put an ad in the paper, I don't think. I think it was just, like, mostly word of mouth. Like, I told coworkers, I was selling arcade games and people would come, you know, look at them or buy one or whatever. But, by the time I moved, I still had most of them, right? And, um, so as I'm getting ready to leave, a co-worker, and not like a direct co-worker, just somebody that happened to work out there, I mean, I work with 5,000 people, so it's somebody who knew somebody, said, hey, my husband has a convenience store, and he would like to come buy your games, and I'm like, oh, and this is great, right? Because first of all, it's a convenience store, so they're going to get played, so I thought that was cool, and second of all, I thought a guy that owns a convenience store is probably just rolling in the cash, right? Um... So, he comes over, and basically, I think I had, at that point, three games left, and he offered me a 100 for all three, and if I could go back in time, uh, like, to any time in the history of the world, I would go back and punch that guy in the mouth, um, <laughs> because, you know, it was like, it was everything that I hate about situations like that, where he was an adult, and I was barely an adult, I mean, I think I was... 21 or 22, and, you know, he knew he had me over a barrel, that I had to sell these things before we moved, and he was just completely taking advantage of the situation, and knew that I couldn't say no, uh, I mean, I could have, you know, but, um, when I got to Spokane, I ended up, we lived in a, um, two-bedroom apartment for a year and a half, and there was no way I could have put, I couldn't even afford, um, well, we bought a or uh, rented a, a box truck to move our stuff up there, which um, my wife and, and my dad drove up there, but I didn't have room for six arcade games. Uh, just the logistics would not have worked, so I knew I had to get rid of those games. And then, to add insult to injury, he says that he will take uh, the Star Wars game, not working as is, for free as a favor to me. He will haul this game off as a favor to me. And I was so... Oh, I remember being so mad. And it makes what makes me madder is that I did it. I let him have the game for free. Which, I mean, on my part is probably good karma, right? Because I got the game for free. But, God. I might, you know... I might go back in time twice. And punch him and then go back and punch him five minutes later. Um, just really makes me mad to think about it now. But at the time, you know, I was, I couldn't even see. All I could see was that I had to get rid of those games, you know, and um, that I couldn't take them with me and that they had to go. And so that's what I did. I got rid of them. I basically gave them away to this guy who probably flipped them. He probably didn't put them in, he probably didn't even have a convenience store. I don't even know if that was his real name. <laughs> I don't even remember his name. Um, but yeah. So basically, as we moved from out of El Reno, out of the uh hundred and twenty hundred yeah, hundred and twenty-year-old house or whatever, um, I got rid of uh that collection. And so that those six games are what I refer to as the El Reno collection. Those are the games that I uh had when I lived in El Reno, and then when I left I got rid of all of them. So One question that I wrote down here uh, as a talking point is, would I own them again? In other words, if I were rebuilding my own little home arcade, which I am not doing right now, but if I were, would I buy any of these six games again? So let's run down through the games again. The first is Elevator Action. Would I buy Elevator Action again? Um, I love Elevator Action. I know not everybody loves Elevator Action. I know... um, I don't think uh, the guys at No Quarter loved Elevator Action, um, but I love Elevator Action. Probably partially, it's um, uh, just because I, I liked it as a kid. I liked the spy aspect of it. You know, I liked um, uh, playing it. I don't really remember where I first saw that, but I, I do enjoy the game. And one thing I like about Elevator Action is, I think I've got to the third level a few times I may have got to the fourth I don't know but but um what I like about it is it's not like Qbert or something like I had a Qbert machine and you know to get to my high score level I would have to play for like 30 to 40 minutes something like that. So Elevator Action's not like that. I mean my my uh highest score ever is probably I mean less than 10 minutes. So um I do like that you you know you would gear yourself up, play around or play a few rounds and then be done with it and come back to it. So now, would I own Elevator Action again? Probably not, and uh, we may hear this a few times, but uh, it's easily maimable. In other words, it plays very well in maim. Um, you have a joystick, and you have two buttons, one for shooting and one for jumping. Uh, this is all stuff that translates great to MAME. I've played Elevator Action on iMame on the iPad, and it plays just fine. Uh, so this is probably not a machine I would replace someday, even though I enjoyed it. Game number two, Mat Mania. Um, what, when I think about Mat Mania, I think about... We had Mat Mania at the convenience store by my house. So during the summers, I would walk or ride my bike or later my go-kart... Uh, up to the convenience store and we would spend all day playing Matt Mania and Asteroids and Track and Field. Um, And it was a contest. I think there's either four guys or five guys or five opponents that you have to go through to get um, to get to the championship belt. And then after that you just randomly keep playing opponents. I've never tried, but I suspect I could be the world record holder of this damn game. I don't um, I mean, the like many games of that time, it's presented in a three-dimensional manner, but it's actually a two-dimensional game. Uh, so what that means is when you move, uh, you know, you're looking at a wrestling mat, and when you move up higher or back uh, in the game, uh, you're, you're on a different plane, and so the character that you're fighting can't turn, like he can't turn to his right and punch, like, up on the screen, he has to move up and then punch left where you're at. So once you realize how the computer uh, program is running, all you have to do to get away from somebody is to move up or move down. Uh, and then they have to follow you. So um, to beat Matt Mania, to beat any opponent, go near them and then move up or down onto you know, a different plane, per se. And then when the other when that character starts moving down towards you Or up towards you You're already punching And they just walk into your fists of fury And you punch them several times And knock them to the ground And once they're on the ground You can throw them into the ropes two or three times Do some flying elbows Or, or uh, reverse flying kicks And um, then once you get them on the ground You could go up on the turnbuckle Jump down two or three times And you repeat that entire process Move up, move down Punch them a few times in the face Just for good measure throw them into the ropes, knock them down, two or three jumps off the turnbuckle, and you pin them. And then you go to the next one. You can beat every opponent in about a minute. Um, and then you just repeat it. Literally, I will repeat it until I get tired tired of playing. Like, I have played games of that where I just quit because I was bored or because I had to go to work or do something. But there are times where I feel like I could play that game forever. Now, what does end up happening occasionally is your opponent will get the upper hand at some point, and then you can never turn loose. It's like if you've ever played Yi Kung Fu and pull, get you in the corner, and then you just get a face full of pull 20 times, and you're dead. There's nothing you can do. And so that does occasionally happen um, in Mat Mania, but as long as uh, you keep moving you know, up or down and staying away from those attacks, I feel like I could play Mat Mania pretty much forever. Um, so maybe I'll try that. <laughs> Maybe I'll try playing it forever. <laughs> that sounds like a fun time. Um, so anyway, you know what? I, I've seen. Uh, God, this is going to go off topic. I'm going to do this really quick, but I have seen um, some people do some fundraisers for arcades. Uh, well, I mean, they do fundraisers for like sick kids or something. I don't know, but they do it by playing games. You know, I should play Matt Mania for 24 hours. I'm going to get a camera. I'm going to figure out how to do this. We're going to raise some money um, for professional wrestling. <laughs> because for old broke wrestlers I know um, Jake the Snake Roberts uh, just did a kickstarter I just saw that so we're going to raise some money for Jake and all the poor wrestlers out there I don't know if I could find something good to do a fundraiser for I would do that I would play Matt Mania for 24 hours Anyway, uh, would I own Matt Mania again? Probably not, for the same reason uh, that I wouldn't own Elevator Action again, and that is that it plays just fine in MAME. Uh, it's a two-button game with a, a eight-way joystick, so it's the controls are pretty easy to emulate. Um, I do like Matt Mania. Matt Mania is uh, like, as far as games that I enjoy playing, it's up there in the top ten, top twenty, somewhere like that. Like, I really enjoy Matt Mania. But uh, it's just... Uh, it just doesn't and it's not very challenging and uh, I just I don't know, I can't I can't seem see tying up the space a game requires for Mat Mania. So Moving on to number three, Shinobi. Would I own another shinobi? Well the funny thing is I have owned multiple shinobis. I have owned three shinobi machines. Um, after I got rid of the El Reno Shinobi and I started collecting games again, I found a second shinobi. And I bought that Shinobi, and I played it. Uh, But in the back of my head, I was always worried about that battery going bad. So I went to an auction, and I found another Shinobi, and I bought it. And I called it my spare Shinobi. So when people would come over, and they would say, why do you have two Shinobi machines? I would say, because this is my main one, and that's my spare one, in case anything ever happens to it. And what's funny is the spare one did develop (laughs) a stupid sound issue. Um, because I never turned it on, so it was off, and that battery was never getting any electricity, and I think that's what caused it to um, start going bad, but... So, uh... Yes. And and I... And by the way, do I think that's ridiculous? Yes. I think owning a spare Shinobi machine is pretty ridiculous, but... Um, so I did it. So I've had a lot of Shinobi machines. Would I own another one? Probably not. Um, partially for the same reason that I mentioned before. Uh, Shinobi has three buttons and an eight-way stick, so you know, it's not um, that difficult to emulate. The other thing is uh you know, because the hardware issues associated with those Sega games, I had a Blockseed PCB and it has the same problem now, it's died, because the Suicide Battery, same thing with the Shinobi um, I think um, maybe Altered Beast has the same problems, um I don't know. There's a website out there that lists them all, but uh, so I would probably steer clear of that just because, unless I was willing to find the unencrypted chip and do the burns and do all that stuff. But also, Shinobi, um, I don't think came in a dedicated cabinet. I think Shinobi was only so, uh, only sold as a conversion kit. So it's not like there's the nostalgia of saying, you know, oh well, this you know looks like a Shinobi machine. I think all my Shinobi machines. One was in an old, like a Williams, like a Defender cabinet. And one was, uh... Uh... I don't remember what one was. Just a generic cabinet. And I don't remember what the the first one I had, the El Reno one. But, uh... Yeah, so there's not that nostalgia factor for as far as the cabinet or the controls. They're all kind of different, so... Uh... I probably would not buy another Shinobi again. Next up is Street Fighter II Championship Edition. Um... And unfortunately for it and um Power Instinct Two Well Power Instinct Two I wouldn't buy again because it's a horrible game. <laughs> so that solves that problem real quick. Uh Street Fighter Two I probably wouldn't buy, but um I would you know, I would probably buy if I were if I were building a home arcade game, I think you have to have a fighting game or two. I think people love fighting games and it just depends on what area you like. Are you um you know, the 80s, uh, uh... Well, you know, in my arcade, in uh, when I had everything going at the old house, I had Karate Champ, which I love Karate Champ. My offer is still out there. I get to be player one, but uh, anybody who wants to play Karate Champ for money, bring it. Um, so we've got... Uh, I'm calling people out on the podcast. We've gone off on a terrible, terrible tangent. Um... So you've got th- that era. You have um, the '90s, the Mortal Kombat, the Street Fighters. I probably wouldn't get another Street Fighter, um, but I probably would get a Mortal Kombat machine. I had um, actually I had a Mortal Kombat One, and I had a Ultimate Mortal Kombat Three, which is always a, a crowd pleaser because you know there's so many different playable characters on Ultimate Mortal Kombat Three that um, you know no matter who people want to play, they could go find them. So. Uh, and I would probably um like I said get at least one uh it's hard to call karate champ a fighting game. I mean it is, but um you know, it's not um like the later the nineties one. So uh maybe I would maybe I would, maybe I wouldn't get another Street Fighter II game. Um I definitely would get another Mortal Kombat. I would not definitely not get Power Instinct Two. Um I have only played Power Instinct 2 once in MAME just to confirm that that's the old game that I had, and it was. So, um, yeah, Power Instinct 2. Um, You know what? I'm going to take a sidebar here. Type in YouTube Power Instinct 2. Let's see it. There is Power Instinct 2 Playthrough. Yes, this game is so horrible. There's an old lady right now that says ready. They're like generic Street Fighter 2. There's a ninja. That guy's name is Nyakatomoto. But it looks like Ryu. <laughs> I remember that this, this game is so terrible. Keith Wayne versus Thin Nin. I mean it looks just like a Street Fighter II rip-off, you know, but um I don't see the uh the girls that I remember on there. But anyway, um boy, what a terrible game that was. Yeah, I would never I would never own that again. Um and then, let's see, what was that? Oh, the last one was Star Wars. And, I mean, I, I've i seen Star Wars games for sale. My my friend Dean has sold Star Wars games. Uh, he had a sit-down version of Star Wars. I mean, I would love to have Star Wars, but a couple of things. Number one, I mean, that game is so repetitive. I mean, you only have two levels, and um, I'm not particularly good at it. I mean, I enjoy it, but I'm not... I mean, I could blow up the Death Star maybe, maybe twice, in a game, uh, and then I'm pretty much out. So, uh, so I'm not great at the game, and I really, I just won't pay the prices of a Star Wars cabinet. Um, I mean, I, you know, I was joking earlier on the podcast about being a big spinner moving up to the hundred dollar range, but um, you know, I, I could count on one hand the games that I paid more than $300 for. Uh, actually, I could probably count on one finger the games that I paid more than $300 for. I could count on one hand the games that I paid more than 200 for. So, um, you know, that was my range for buying games. I was a, a $100, $200, $300 range kind of guy. And Star Wars games go from anywhere from 1000 to 2000 And I just won't... To me, it was just never worth that. Um, I like it, I'll play it when I see it, but um, to tie up that much money uh, I, I just can't justify that in my head, especially knowing that you know, it's something that's going to need repair eventually I'm always afraid of XY monitors vector monitors scare me um, so, yeah I, I probably wouldn't um, but if you buy one, I'll come over and play it <laughs> so we'll make that deal right there so anyway, that is the El Reno collection. Oh, you know what? I was going to talk about um, the uh, the pictures. So uh, this predates, this collection predates cell phones. And um, it might predate when I had a digital camera. I don't remember when I got my first digital camera. It does predate. I don't think I got a digital camera until later on in the 90s. So I didn't have a digital camera, and I didn't have... Um, you know, any pictures of these games, but what I did have at one point in time was this thing called Snappy, and Snappy was uh, this little blue device that plugged into the parallel port on your computer, and it had RCA inputs on it, and so what it was for is you plug this in, and, and Snappy had some software. And you could run a videotape into your computer, and it would display it on a window, and then you would click, you know, capture, and you could capture or snap, snappy, uh, you could snap screenshots from uh, those videos. Now, you couldn't record moving video. You couldn't import, like, a whole videotape, but you could take snapshots um, from a, a VCR or from TV or whatever. And so... Uh, at that time I had a camcorder that Susan and I had bought and so I had recorded uh, like a little video walkthrough of the El Reno house so I have some out some pictures of the outside of the house um, and I have some pictures of the arcade now I think the snappy default resolution was 640 by 480 um, and it still I mean it didn't look Great because the source is you know uh, VHS or whatever, and on the um, in my little arcade room, I think what I had done is turn the lights out so that you could see the monitor screen. So I had this video, and I used Snappy, and I had gone in and I had taken snapshots um, from this this film. I mean, there's really like five to ten seconds of footage of this room. But it was enough where I had gone through the room slowly and I had taken snapshots with Snappy of each game. Now, I no longer have the videotape. I don't know where the, the actual tape went, but I do um, still have the the JPEGs, the snaps of those. So that's where the pictures of those uh, arcade games came from. And that's really the only history uh, that I have of those machines. But I did, in one of the pictures, you can see the Power Instinct 2... Uh, marquee on top of the machine, which is how I figured out the name of that game. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that that's really the only thing that I have from those machines. I have those little screenshots that I use Snappy to get from the, the tape, and the tape's gone, and the games are gone, so that's all that's left. So Anyway, I think this pretty much covers the El Reno Arcade Collection. We will be back next week with episode 130. I've got a couple of ideas on the drawing room board, so we'll see uh, which one I go with. They're not all strictly technical or arcade or game related. I've got one show idea on um, backwards messages and music. Like when we were kids, that was such a big deal, you know, so I've been thinking about doing that. Um, I have a show topic called Reclaiming Spaces, which is about selling off arcade games. Uh, So just some different stuff there, but um, we'll see. Uh, Usually I decide... Saturday. <laughs> Sometimes Saturday. Sometimes I work on them through the week. Sometimes I don't settle on one till Saturday. But anyway, um, that's it for episode 130. So thanks again for tuning in to another episode. Uh, I want to thank uh, our sponsor, Hexcrasher, with uh, his website, ArcadePerfect.net. Uh, and like I said, you can find Hexcrasher on Twitter at Arcade underscore Perfect. So uh, go check out ArcadePerfect.net. Uh, if you have feedback on this show or any show, you can send me your feedback. You can email it to me at robohara at Rob com, Or you can always leave a voicemail message for me on the You Don't Know flat voicemail box, which is area code 206-309-9501. Thanks again for everybody for listening. Thanks uh, out there to all the other podcasters. And uh, that's it for this episode. So we'll see you next week on another episode of You Don't Know Flight.